a tear-off card on the, the corner of it. And uh, if you could fill out some information. All right, so we have uh, been in Mark and are continuing in Mark. And, and one thing I hope that you've noticed over the last few messages, uh, and really Mark chapter 8, chapter 9, is how interconnected this all is. It's real easy for us to sometimes think of these different stories in a gospel like Mark as just like these little standalone episodes, but they aren't. They're connected. They go together, and I hope that you're beginning to pick that up. Uh, last week, we left Jesus, Peter, James, and John beginning to come down from what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, Raphael, one of the great Renaissance painters, uh, was famous for his painting of the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and as we think about that amazing mountaintop experience, we have to remember what came before that. When we think back to Mark chapter 8, remember Peter confessed Jesus' true identity, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus followed it up by describing to them what that meant for him to be the Messiah. What is his mission? That he came to be rejected, to be arrested, to be crucified, and then to rise from the dead. And of course, remember Peter said, no, Jesus, don't talk like that. We're never going to let that happen to you. And then Jesus rebuked Peter for thinking the things of men and not the things of God. And then Jesus followed that up by describing for them what it meant to follow him as the kind of Messiah who was going to die on a cross and rise from the dead. What does that mean for us as his followers? We see Jesus' identity and mission. What is our identity and mission? Jesus said that it means that we're going to have to practice self-denial and sacrifice. We may even have to endure suffering if we're going to stand boldly for him in the midst of a wicked and perverse world. But what is the... Go back up to that other picture there, Mike. I'm not done with that one. So what is the prize at the end of this endurance that we're running? What is the prize? What does Jesus' death <clears throat> excuse me, accomplish? What is going to be worth the sacrifice, the suffering, maybe even laying down our lives? What is the reward? It's this. That was the point of the Mount of Transfiguration, to show them the reward, to show them that what lies for us ahead is to share in the glory of God's kingdom. And so Jesus brought Peter, James, and John up to get a foretaste of that glory. As they saw Jesus in His heavenly splendor, as they saw and witnessed Moses and Elijah talking with Him, as the glory of God descended in a cloud and they heard the voice of the Father, it was, it was the mountaintop experience to top all mountaintop experiences. But as anyone here who has ever experienced a spiritual mountaintop, a spiritual high, you know that eventually, what do you have to do? You have to come back down the mountain, right? You have to come back down into the valley of life. You can't stay at youth camp forever. VBS only lasts a week. And I know that's, you know, thank, thank you. I know leaders, thank you guys for that. Revival services come to an end. Eventually, you have to come home from the mission trip or the trip to the Holy Land. You know, that, that wonderful week of vacation. Well, eventually, the daily grind comes calling and you have to get back into the thick of life. And the same was true for Peter, and James and John and Jesus. And so down the mountain they came. And what was there waiting for them when they got to the bottom? What did they find in the office that Monday morning as they came back? Well, let's read and find out. Look with me in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they've come down the mountain, the rest of the disciples are there, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. 
When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him, Jesus asked his father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. And after he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Raphael brilliantly captured this overwhelming contrast between the Mount of Transfiguration and the glory there and the agony waiting before them down below. Notice at the bottom right, this is the bottom portion. It's a big, tall painting. This is the bottom portion of the painting. And notice on the bottom right, you see the demon-possessed boy and his father. What a shock it must have been for the four as they came from this heavenly retreat to face such a hellish reality. Satan tormenting one of God's creation. To go from light to darkness like that, to go from praise to, to bickering, From God's power to this hopelessness of a father and the impotence of Jesus' followers must have been truly a shock. And true to form, as soon as the crowd sees Jesus, they're amazed that he's there and they come rushing up to him. I can imagine that it must have been sort of some relief. Finally, Jesus is here. He'll make everything okay. He'll sort all of this stuff out. Because it appears like the disciples were just taking a bad situation and making it worse. I mean, here they are arguing religion with the Jewish scribes while this desperate father stood by, confused and grieving for his son, tormented by the powers of darkness. Thank God the light of the world finally has shown up. And as soon as the crowd got to Jesus, he got to business. He wanted to know what was going on. What were they arguing about? And before either the scribes or the disciples could answer, this boy's father jumps in and explains the situation and his son's tragic condition. So this morning, as we look into this this jarring return to a hurting world, I want us to consider our own world. Think about the people in our community, the people you know, people you interact with every day. Think about the needs in our nation and in our world, the brokenness, the pain, the confusion, 
the spiritual oppression. Think about the lostness around us, the lostness that Ben was talking about earlier. It can seem daunting, can't it? Overwhelming even. It's no wonder we can be so tempted to stay up on our own mountains, right? Isolated and away from all of these complex issues and all of the the pain and the suffering. We, We like feeling safe and comfortable and secure, like we're in control. But see, we're called. We're called to follow Jesus' example to go and to give and tell and get our hands dirty. We have to go into the valleys of the world just as Jesus stepped down from heaven into our suffering and sin-filled valley. We're called to do the same thing. Remember the context again. Leading up to these stories, Jesus' identity, His mission, our mission as His followers, and the glory that will someday be revealed. The transfiguration was framed by Jesus telling us that if we're going to follow Him, we should expect suffering and sacrifice. He talks about it before the mount. He talks about it on the mount. He talks about that on the way down from the mount. But once they get to the valley, Jesus demonstrates another requirement to be His followers. In addition to sacrifice and being willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, we also have to serve. Service is an important part of being a follower of Jesus. And Jesus uses this encounter to show us that as we serve, what we're doing is we're not, we're not letting the power of God's glory stay up on that mountain. We're bringing it down from the mountain. We're bringing it down into the valleys of life to the hurting people that we meet every day. And as we look at this story, through three different movements in this story, we discover three key spiritual truths we have to face if we're going to be in the world but not of it. Serving, sacrificing, and suffering for the cause of Christ. And the first spiritual truth we learn about is spiritual warfare. We learn about spiritual warfare as we see Jesus cast out this boy's demon. As he casts out the demon, Jesus teaches us something about spiritual warfare. Now, there's a lot of bad theology and misinformation about spiritual warfare. And when we, ba- when we, when we operate based on bad theology... Not only will we be as impotent as the disciples, but we can cause greater harm both to the hurting people that come to us for help and to the cause of Christ. And this miracle highlights a few important truths about spiritual warfare. I want to make sure that we're on the same page. This isn't everything about this topic, but I want to make sure we understand these few things right here. Beginning with the description of this boy's spiritual and physical torment. Now, it sounds like epilepsy. Anybody that knows about it's epileptic, that they kind of pick up on those symptoms here and the seizures and and the going rigid and the not being able to talk. But the text is very clear that no matter what this manifested itself as, in this boy's situation, it was of demonic origin. It's very clear. And we have to understand that, yes, it is true. All suffering, all sickness, all tragedy and death are a result of living in a sinful and fallen world. However, and here's the first truth, Not all physical illness is demonic in origin. Nor is all suffering and tragedy the result of sin or evil spirits. This is critical. Now, can a demon possess people and cause physical ailments? Obviously. We see that right here in this story. Do people sometimes get sick, suffer and die because of sin in their life? Of course that happens. But I believe the majority 
of the sickness and the suffering and the tragedy that we experience in our life as a result of living in a fallen world where our bodies can get sick and they get old and they die. Accidents happen. Tragedy is no respecter of persons. And so we have to use extreme caution, prayerful compassion, and spirit-filled discernment before we ever attribute a physical, mental, or emotional malady to a spiritual cause. I'm not saying that they aren't sometimes spiritual in origin, but I'm just saying we must be extremely cautious about how we handle this. The second truth here is that Satan is at war with the Imago Dei. Satan is at war with the Imago Dei. That means the image of God within humanity. This boy's lifelong suffering shows the reality of Satan's rebellion against God. Here we see that age-old struggle between the destroyer of life and the giver of life, the prince of darkness and the light of the world. From the Garden of Eden through today until his final defeat when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, his mission in this world is to attack, maim, and destroy the image of God within you and me. That's what he wants to do. And he'll do that through tempting us to sin, deceiving us with lies, reminding us of our past guilt and causing us to feel shame by raising questions of doubt in our minds about God's goodness and power, and yes, even through physical, mental, or emotional torment and spiritual oppression. This is all Satan has to try and resist and thwart God's will. And he will do it, and he will do it in our lives, in our families, in our communities, in our nation, and in our world. You remember the, the Gadarene man, the man who was possessed with a legion of demons. You remember him when Jesus encountered him that came across the Sea of Galilee and he was living amongst the tombs? What did those demons drive him to do? He was living in tombs, naked, crying out, driven mad, cutting himself with stones. Those demons were trying to destroy the image of God. And when Jesus cast them out and healed them, healed the man, it says that he was returned to his right mind. And the people found him dressed and sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus restored the divine image within him. Satan is at war. He's at war with the image of God. He's at war with us. A third spiritual truth about spiritual warfare is that Jesus' compassion and power will always win. Yes, Satan is at war with us, but Jesus has won and will win. Amen? And we see right here in this story Jesus' compassion. Once again, as he quickly heals the boy before the crowd gets any larger. I love how Jesus was always seeking to honor the dignity of the hurting people that come to him. He never wanted to make an example or a spectacle out of them. And we're going to talk more about Jesus' compassion in a moment. But we see it as, as he notices the crowd getting bigger, he quickly heals the boy. But this miracle also testifies not just to Jesus' compassion but to his mission and his power to destroy the forces of evil in our world. This, this goes all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Remember, as soon as he's baptized, he goes off into the wilderness to face temptations by Satan, and he overcomes every volley that Satan fires his way. When Paul writes, he puts all of this into the cosmic grand scheme of things when he says in Colossians chapter 1, For he, for God, has rescued us, from the dominion of darkness, has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves and who we have redemption 
the forgiveness of sin. Jesus came to do nothing less than to set us free and to lead us as Moses led Israel out of Egypt, to lead us out of the dominion of darkness so we could defect into the kingdom of the Son of Jesus Christ. Whereas Paul says in the next chapter that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now the implications of this are profound for us. Think about this, the suffering that we're called to compassionately minister to, the needs that God equips us to meet, the people. Think about the people that we're called to reach. Those who are lost in their sin. The racists, the haters, the drug addicts and dealers, the LGBTQ, the alcoholics, the adulterers, the Muslims, the Mormons, the Hindus, the atheists. It doesn't matter. They are not our enemies. You hear me? They are not our enemies. They are the very ones that Christ died for and the very ones He calls us to reach. They are the people we are to be fighting for. We heard it in our New Testament reading this morning, Ephesians chapter 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's not against people. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Consider the issues that plague us today. Alcoholism, drug addiction, pornography, racism, divisive politics, media bias, generational poverty, gender dysphoria, same-sex attraction, dysfunctional families, failing marriages. We need to see these things for what they are. Cosmic powers of darkness to tempt, confuse, deceive, lead astray, and destroy the image of God within us. And that means that these things ultimately need to be met with the cosmic power and confession and compassion of Jesus Christ. That's what we need. Yes, programs can be helpful. Programs and ministries that help people get out of poverty or help people with addictions or or counseling for people, for, for married couples, those things are good. They're helpful. We need those things. But ultimately, we need to do what Jesus tells His Father to do with His Son and bring them to Jesus. We have to bring these people, these needs, to Jesus because only He can set people free. Only He can break those chains we sang about earlier and set people free from slavery to sin. Only Jesus can forgive us. Only Jesus can erase the shame of our past. Only Jesus can transform us from the inside out. In the Gospels, Jesus is repeatedly commanding demons to leave the people they possess, and they do. They do it with shrieks of agony and defeat. And we see even in this story, this demon's last futile attempt to hurt the image of God within this boy as it leaves, even causing those who are watching to think that he was dead. But at the touch of Jesus, the boy stands up, alive and well and fully restored to health and to his family. Jesus' love, his compassion, his power will always win in the war against Satan. But this also highlights a final truth about spiritual warfare for us. And that's that sometimes things get worse before they get better. Who might say the night is darkest just before dawn? Because God's 
Work in our lives is a process, isn't it? It's not always an instantaneous, you flip the switch and we're just transformed and changed. And because God's work in our life is a process, sometimes the initial results of that are conflict, not peace. Just as the cross has to come before the empty tomb, sometimes we have to suffer before we experience that new life. To the Father and the crowd, Jesus' intervention at first looked like He made things worse. They thought the boy was dead. Listen, our, our lives, our world is a mess, isn't it? And so the process of salvation and sanctification, sometimes it's messy. Ministering to people in their suffering and in their sin sometimes is messy. But in the end, Satan is dethroned. This boy is set free. His physical, mental, emotional, social health is restored and the boy is raised to walk in the newness of life. Sometimes things have to get a little bit worse before they get better. These are some important truths that we see as Jesus cast out this boy's demon about the nature of spiritual warfare in this world. And we are at war. There is a spiritual war going on all around us. There's also spiritual growth going on within us. And so we also learn something about spiritual growth as we see Jesus draw out the faith of this dad. You know, the father in this story is an inspiration, isn't he? I mean, what a great dad. He loved and cared for his son through some horrific conditions. And, and any parent should be able to identify with this man's sense of desperation. Who among us doesn't hurt with our child when they're hurting? Who among us wouldn't say, God, why my child and why not me? I would gladly take this on myself so they don't have to suffer through this. And that's the way this dad was. He never abandoned his family. He never shipped off his son to be somebody else's problem. He sought every means he could to help him. And finally he heard the news about Jesus, this, this Jewish rabbi, and his followers who were able to heal people and set the oppressed free. And So he brought his son to them filled with hopeful expectations, only to have those hopes dashed by the failure of Jesus' followers. I mean, seriously, is it any wonder that this man's faith was shaken? I contend that this man's doubt is less about Jesus than about Jesus' followers' representation of Jesus. His doubt was in them. His doubt was in their failure. And I'll say more about that in just a moment, their failure. But for now, can we agree that it's understandable for this man's faith to struggle? Can we agree? Can we agree that it's commendable that despite his dashed hopes, his, his torn asunder expectations, he still talks to Jesus about his son and still brings his son to Jesus? Yes, I think that's very commendable. Now, as you read this story, and, and, and he brings his son to Jesus, and his son, the demons detect Jesus' presence, and immediately they throw the boy down, and he's writhing in, in pain and agony, and Jesus takes the time there to ask the dad for the backstory. You know, it's kind of, kind of like when you watch a TV show, flashback, you know. Do we really need a backstory now, Jesus? I mean, why not heal the boy first, and then ask the dad to explain what's going on? Why does Jesus not do that? It's a good question. I think it's because the boy wasn't the only one that Jesus wanted to heal. Jesus wanted to compassionately help this heartbroken dad as well. And so Jesus 
first shares this dad's frustration and actually gives voice to it when he says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long must I stay with you? How long must I put up with you? I'm sure that's the way that dad felt. And I don't think that Jesus is directing this only to the disciples, but to the crowd and to the Jewish scribe and to the world in general. Remember, Jesus has just come down from his own mountaintop moment. He's been on that mountain having another taste of the glory that he set aside for us. And he comes down from that to this harsh, sudden reminder of the brokenness of his world and the faithlessness of the people made in his image. But Jesus didn't let any of their doubts, he didn't let any of their disbeliefs lessen his ability or his willingness to act. He didn't let it affect him. Instead, Jesus' authority, power, and mission are about to be put on full, glorious display for all to see. See, this dad understood something about Jesus. He understood that not only did Jesus have the power to help, he had the compassion to care. Notice what this dad says. He says, if you can do anything, which is him saying, I don't know what you can do, anything you can do. Any help that you can give is welcome. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He acknowledges both the love and the power of Jesus. And Jesus compassionately wanted to draw out this man's faith to help both him and his son. And so, by asking him to tell his son's story, by taking the time to do that, Jesus was giving this father space to express what was in his heart, his love and devotion for his hurting son, his agony and grief over the effects of a sinful world in his son's life, and his hope that Jesus could do something. He was letting this dad express all of this that was within him. In his commentary on this, James Edwards writes this, The question of Jesus invites the father to come to him as a total person with hard facts and with human hopes. And then he goes on to explain that while help is the object of the Father's request, the source of his hope is rooted in the compassion of Jesus. And so Jesus seized on this. He seized on this if-you-can phrase. And this is key to understanding what Jesus is doing to heal this father's heart and to draw out his faith. This is the key to understanding our own spiritual growth, how we can grow in our faith. Basically, Jesus' response to the issue is is not what Jesus can or can't do. That's not what it's about. It's not about what Jesus can or can't do because Jesus can do anything, right? With God, nothing is impossible. So that's not the issue. Rather, Jesus places the burden on the man when he says everything is possible for the one who believes. It's not about God's ability. Jesus is challenging this man to take the next step, a step of faith. This man came to Jesus in hope. He came to Jesus in desperation. He came to Jesus with some expectations, but now it's to take all of that and to turn it into trust. Will he trust Jesus to do what only Jesus can do? And the same is true for each of us. The problem is not God's unwillingness or inability. It's our unbelief. That's the issue. Faith, and by that I mean absolute 
trust and confidence in God is the only true bridge between our needs and His provision. Between our weakness and His power. Between our sin and His saving grace. It's faith. Now we have to be careful though that we don't take this verse out of context. A lot of people take this verse and try to use it to justify any wish, any desire or dream they have that somehow if they just believe enough, God has to do it. That's not what Jesus is saying. God is not a genie in a bottle and prayer and faith is not rubbing the lamp and if you just have the prayer and the faith, He has to give you your three wishes. That's not the way any of this works. Jesus isn't saying that God will do whatever you want Him to if you just believe enough. Alexander McLaren explains it well. He says, Faith must never go farther than God's clear promises. For whatever goes beyond God's Word is not faith, but something else assuming its appearance. In other words, we become guilty of making God in our own image. We've created a man-made religion about us. And we've made God in the Bible say something that neither have ever said. But there's the opposite problem. That's one problem people have. But I think most of us probably are dealing with the opposite problem. It's that we don't really believe God can do what God can do. Our problem is not that we are believing and asking God to do inappropriate things. I don't think we're believing and asking God to do what God has told us very clearly He's willing to do. Think of the people that you've written off as being too far gone. God's not going to get through to them. Think of the sins that you repeatedly struggle with that you've just given up hope that God's ever going to help you overcome them. Think about the healings that we believe are beyond His power or the financial situations that we fail to trust God to work through. That is just as much a man-made, man-centered religion, and it's false. Because if we let Him, Jesus will do for us what He did for this man. He will help us believe the promises of His Word and pray in faith that God will fulfill them. Which is what happened when this man said, I believe, help my unbelief. What an honest, genuine expression of of trembling in perfect faith. The faith the size of a mustard seed. Hear this man publicly In front of all these people, he not only declares his faith, but his weakness. How many of us are willing to do that? And he pleads for Jesus to heal his heart as well as his son. Here he's brought his son, and now he's saying, Jesus, help me. Help my unbelief so that you can help my son. And what an encouragement to us. Listen, you don't need to think yourself a hypocrite just because your faith is imperfect. You hear that? You're not a hypocrite because your faith is imperfect. Like this man, we have to decide whether we believe that nothing is impossible for God and we have to decide if we believe that He will always do what He says He will do. Do you believe that? That's what this man came to believe. That's what he came to experience as God did both. He did the impossible and He fulfilled His promise. See, spiritual warfare is going on all around us. Spiritual growth is happening within us. And Jesus wants to both help you experience His compassion and power in your life, and He wants to draw out your faith and help you grow in your knowledge and dependence on God. But the third spiritual truth we learn from this story is we learn about spiritual power as Jesus calls out the disciples' failure. 
He calls out their failure, revealing to us the key to spiritual power, which really helps us to grow in our faith and helps us to experience that victory in spiritual warfare. You know, I think one of the reasons this man's faith was so weak was because Jesus' disciples had failed him. They didn't represent the Lord very well. What about us? How are we representing Jesus to those around us who are oppressed and tormented by the lies of Satan, those who are led astray by the influences of wickedness? What about those who are suffering the physical, mental, spiritual, social results of of living in a sinful and fallen world? Those people are around us, they are watching us, and they are coming to us. How well are we doing with them? How are we handling them? These opportunities that God gives us to meet the needs around us, to share His love, to be patient with others, to forgive others who wrong us, to show compassion on the hurting, to proclaim His truth in love. How are we doing? Because just as this man brought his need to the disciples, people bring their needs to us, don't they? Because they know that we're Christians. Because they know you go to First Baptist Church. But will their faith in Jesus be drawn out by us? Or will it be dragged down by us? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. So what happened with the disciples? That's what they wanted to know. They come later back into Capernaum, into the house, and they say, Jesus, what happened? Why could we not cast out this demon? I mean, Jesus has given them the power and authority to cast out demons. They've done it before, multiple times. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe the problem is that they were relying on their own power, on their past successes. They've done it before, so certainly they could do it again, right? But they failed to remember that the power and authority Jesus gave them didn't come from themselves. It came from Him. As Jesus would later tell them in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Their failure wasn't because they didn't give it their best. They did. Their failure wasn't because they didn't have the resources or the knowledge. They did. As one author described, they believed in the process. They believed in themselves because they had done it previously. But they were not resting their faith in Jesus. Church, it breaks my heart, but I'm guilty of the same thing. We as a church are guilty of doing the same thing. As believers and as a church in the 21st century, listen, we have all the knowledge we need. Think about the Christian books that we have at our disposal. Think about the online resources and and computer programs we have to study the Bible. Think about the webinars and the podcasts and the YouTube videos and the conferences we can go to. Think about all the Bible studies that we offer here at First Baptist Church. All the witnessing training that we've done. All of the Sunday school classes we have. Listen, we've got the knowledge. We've got the know-how. We've got the expertise. And we have all the resources we need, don't we? Listen, as Christians and as a church, we are wealthier than any Christians or churches ever in 2,000 years of church history. We've got the ability right now to communicate with people around the world from Thompson, Georgia. Anybody from 
Somebody in Japan could be watching us right now. Ben? That's amazing. Amazing. We've got the buses and the buildings and the budgets. We've got it all. So why are we so often powerless? Why are we not changing the world as salt and light? Why is this country in the condition it's in today? Why are we not bringing more people to faith in Jesus and making disciples and meeting needs and transforming lives? Why isn't this baptistry being used every single week? Why are Christian marriages failing? Why are Christian children going off to school and being led astray? Why do believers live and talk like the lost around them? Why? Jesus said it's because we don't pray. Can it be that simple, David? Well, what is prayer? One definition is that prayer is the focusing and directing of faith in specific requests to God. It's the act of connecting our faith with God's power. And both prayer and faith really are a confession of our inadequacy, of our powerlessness, and our need for God's power, for His wisdom and grace and truth. As Jesus said, apart from Him, we can do nothing. If we are powerless, if we're doing nothing, maybe it's because we're trying to do it apart from Him. There's one other little detail in this painting by Raphael that's down on the bottom left. And maybe that's Raphael calling to explain to us what that's about there. See the man? The man looking over at the demon-possessed boy and his hurting father? Who's the man pointing to? He's pointing to Jesus. He's saying the help doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus. The glorious one up there on the mountain that came down for us. Imagine the great things that would take place if we would pray for them. The salvations. The revival in our church. The spiritual awakening in this land. Think about the needs that will be met. The lives that could be transformed if we would just pray. Following Jesus on this road of sacrifice and suffering and service, listen, it requires constant awareness of our weakness and a constant dependence and trust that God's power can be made perfect through our weakness. Listen, as we follow Jesus, we're going to face needs and tasks beyond our ability and our expertise, and that's good, because you know what that does? It reminds us that the mission isn't ours. The mission belongs to God. We are His servants. He works through us. He calls us. He shapes us. He sends us out to be disciples who make disciples, to be His hands and feet, to be His voice speaking truth and love. But if we don't remain in constant contact with the source of our power, it's for nothing. We will fail. The invitation this morning is very simple. Jesus is calling. He's calling you. Maybe this morning He's calling you to be a disciple. Maybe this morning you need to let Jesus set you free. Let Him forgive your sins and erase your shame. Let Him draw out your faith. Listen, you don't have to get your act together before you come to Jesus. You don't have to have all your questions answered before you come to Jesus. Come to Jesus with your questions. Come with your doubts and fears. You may say, David, I just don't know if I have enough faith. Jesus will help your unbelief. Come to Him today. 
wherever you are, whatever's going on in your life, if you need to come put your faith and trust in Jesus for the first time to receive His grace and mercy, I invite you to come in just a moment as we sing. We'll figure it out together. Jesus wants to draw out your faith. But maybe for you, the call is to renew yourself as a disciple. To renew yourself as a disciple maker. You think, David, I'm just not that great a Christian. David, I can't really serve God. David, I can't, you know, I just, I don't have my act together either. I make mistakes. I'm inadequate. I'm not worthy. Yes, you're right. You are. So am I. We all are. That's the point of grace. Come to Jesus. Put your faith in Him. This altar will be open. I'll be standing right here. Maybe you just need to come and say, Jesus, forgive me. I've, I've gotten distracted. I've gotten calloused. I've kind of shut myself up on the mountain and I've forgotten about the hurts in the valley around me and, and I've not really trusted in your power to work through me. I've not, I focus too much on my weaknesses and not enough on your strength, your power that will be made perfect in my weakness. Jesus, I want to rededicate my life to following you, to living for you, to praying. I need to, be a, to pray more. I need to trust more that you can do more through me than I could ever imagine. This altar is open and I'll be standing here to pray with you if that's what God is speaking to you. Maybe God is calling you to unite with this church family. Listen, we are, no, we are not perfect. Can I get an amen? We are not perfect. No more than the disciples were perfect. But you know what? Together, we can walk this journey and watch Jesus take our weaknesses and turn them into His strength. Together, we can shine the light of Jesus into this dark world and we can reach out to those who are hurting and help them know the compassion and power of Jesus in their life. If you want to be a part of a church like that, that's honest, that's real, that's struggling, that's walking the road together, hand in hand, picking each other up when we fall down, then we are the place for you. But whatever Jesus is saying to you, as God the Father said on the Mount of Transfiguration, listen to Him. Do what He says. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we are thankful and we acknowledge the, the reality of, of your involvement in our life and in this world. Lord, we, we know that this world is not as you created it to be. And there is a spiritual war going on between sin and righteousness, between Satan and you, between the, 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 the light and the dark. Father, we know that you are at work bringing redemption to this broken world. And we want to be a part of that mission. And it begins with us. It begins with the people that are listening right now online or or on the radio, or in this room, that they themselves need to be redeemed by you. They need to be brought into the kingdom of the Son that you love. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here that needs to make that decision to commit their life to Christ, they would come with what little faith they may think they have, and they would put it into your hand and experience your power. Father, help us to grow spiritually, Lord. Help us to grow in our faith. Help us to grow in our service to the world around us, God. And to realize that the power doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from our knowledge. It doesn't come from our skills or our abilities or our pocketbooks. The power comes from you. And if we would but trust in you and rely on you, you would do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Father, move in our midst today. And may we be obedient to your call. In Jesus' name.